hello and welcome to episode 14 of the State of Play podcast. If you're wondering why we started with a, with a few giggles, it's because uh, I obviously said it was episode 15 when it wasn't. Uh, I'm your co-host, or your host today, uh, Pet Barisha, at Pet Barisha on Twitter, and I'm joined as always, or mostly, most of the time, the last couple of episodes have been uh, where we've been in and out, uh, Matt Santangelo. Hey, it's good to be back, and um, yeah, we're uh, going to talk quite a bit uh, about the uh, what's going on with uh, that certain blue club in London, um, among many <laughs> other things. But yeah, it's good to be back on another episode. Uh, we keep rolling on. Are we turning into a Chelsea podcast? We kind of are. We should just keep getting like Alex on every episode or something like that. <laughs> it's. I mean, obviously, we've got the link that is Sarri, which means that it kind of weighs into your expertise. And then Chelsea being a Premier League club, it's kind of something that I like to talk about so it's weird that we are basically becoming i think uh, some sort of major rebranding is going to probably happen soon if it, who knows at this point i guess we're kind of rolling with and uh you know seeing what ultimately gets a lot of attention and uh, traction. <laughs> yeah uh what have you been up to anyway in general man recently same old uh watching a lot of football uh hopefully getting some warmer weather getting ready for spring um, a little <laughs> baseball coming up, some MLS. Uh, oh, we're nice. going to be coming up with the uh, basketball playoffs. So there's a lot of things going oh, on. Yeah. March Madness, another thing. Mm. So um, there's a lot going on in the world of sports, and I'm uh, I'm very excited. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a really interesting time, and it's gotten a lot warmer over here in London as well. So uh, bright times ahead. But I guess you know we joked about becoming a Chelsea podcast, but I think we've got to start by talking about what the. F- what the hell just happened um, in the, the Carling Cup final or the League Cup final, Riley, rather. If you guys haven't watched yet, picture the 123rd minute of a football match in a cup final. Kepa Arezabalaga, who we actually profiled in maybe episode three here, Matt. Uh, Justin Sherman did an awesome job coming on and talking about him. He got cramp maybe midway through the second period of... of um, extra time so about 120 minutes or so and then he got cramp again like 127th minute and at that point Willy Caballero the reserve goalkeeper had kind of started warming up he'd got his gloves on everyone was kind of like okay he's coming on now but Kepper had other plans he just didn't come off he gave uh, uh, he gave Sarri really the, the uh the Kembe Mutombo finger wag. I don't know if you guys are familiar <laughs> with that, but he gave him he's you know like, what? No, 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 I'm not coming off. It's so ridiculous that you say that because I was on our State of Play Twitter account and I was so close to tweeting that, but I was like, oh, I don't think that'll bang. <laughs> um but uh should have done it. Should have done it clearly. But um I try and talk me through any justification for what happened there from Kepa's part? Well, I think yeah, from you know, speak on his on his behalf or you know, from his perspective, I think you know he's he arrived to Chelsea with a big fee attached to his name. So I think obviously to get yanked in a cup final, um, given the circumstances that Chelsea are currently in under Maurizio Sarri, I think it's understandable for any type of young player, especially a keeper who just moved over to a. To England to want to kind of stay on. We see it so many times where a manager decides to yank a player and then the player kind of gives him a little bit of a lip. He kind of says, like, I want to stay on, like, don't take me off. And then eventually he kind of comes off, right? Um, not so much in this case, uh, as you just mentioned and you and you detailed. He was pretty much, he was just saying, it was kind of one of those things where it was like, all right, who's going to who's gonna blink first, right? Is he going to be like, all right, fine, forget it, just stay on it? Or is Kepa going to say, finally, I'll come off? And um, he didn't come off. He's kind of speaking to uh, David Luiz. I think maybe he was probably kind of giving him a little bit of uh, an earful and saying, like, look, like, 
you got to come off. Like the coach wants to make the, the switch here, especially to a keeper like Caballero who played for City. Um, he's he's got a pretty good record in terms of saving penalties, which it looked like it was going that way. Um, the way the game was uh, you know shaping up in the uh, extra time. But um, I think for his perspective, I I understand wanting to be confident, wanting to stay on. I think if you're a competitor, most cases you want to stay on, especially in a cup match. You don't want to come off because you want to be a hero, right? But I think, again, when you're thinking Marito Sarri's perspective, you're trying to think like the guy is kind of going down every couple minutes. He's just come back from injuries. It looks like maybe his wrist or whatever the case is giving some issues. I want to make the switch now. Plus, I, I, I'm thinking with my my tactical situations that, okay, well, Caballero has uh, a better record of saving penalties, and that's what we're going towards. So I can understand it from both. I think uh, what I was reading on Twitter was uh, Alex, uh, he actually works for Bleacher, and he made a good point to me, and he was pretty much saying that, you know, this could be a, something that's really kind of blown out of proportion, but really just is all something that is just a young keeper wanting to stay on, and then Marito sorry, and they kind of kind of had a clashing, and then it kind of gets just gets dropped, or it can be something where he really takes this situation uh, to heart, and he goes, well, you disrespected me in front of everyone on live television in a huge packed stadium in a final game. Now I'm going to bring in Caballero for the rest of the season. Who really knows at this point? But it's going to be interesting to see what the uh, the comments are in the presser. It's really, <laughs> it's really amazing. I, I, I did think at first, though, there may have been just a misunderstanding and maybe language barrier could have played a part in it. Do you think there's any chance that, you know, He's had cramp a couple of times and then the physio team are kind of like, OK, look, we should try and get you off. And he's like, uh, well, I don't know. Let, let me let me try and let me try and run it off. Um, they go back to Sarri and say that uh, they kind of give them their viewpoint rather than say, you know, look, he, he seems fine. Uh, let him play. Because for me, if he's OK physically then he should stay on, right? I don't think there's any question there. There's any question. Mm -hmm. Especially when you're getting paid quite a bit of money. Yeah, but but also you want the warm keeper out there, if that makes sense. I don't don't know. It seems strange for me to send on. It it reminds me of kind of a, a weird time where... I mean, this is going, you know, deep into Arsenal's banter era where we signed Kim Kallstrom on loan and he was brought on two minutes before a penalty shootout. Mind you, he scored, but it's always a strange thing to do. Uh, I think we saw it as well in the World Cup, not the one that just went, but the one before that, where uh, Louis van Gaal brought on a keeper in a quarterfinal, didn't he? Yeah, I think uh, he brought to on take, uh, to say Tim, Tim Krul. Oh, no, no. Yeah, was it Tim? Krul? I think was it was it, it was it the 2014 yeah. World Cup or 2010? I think like he swapped out. I think like, he brought on like Tim Krul or someone. It was another. It was definitely Netherlands. It was definitely yeah, yeah. insane. But um, I, I guess for Maurizio Sarri's point is like the downside or the risk of not taking him off could have actually been quite big. Could you imagine if after the first penalty, Kepper pulls up with cramp and suddenly you're like, okay, well, you know, we can't make the switch here, can we? Yeah, I, I think that's again. It was a little bit of. A, it was a weird situation too, because obviously, um, it from my with the way I looked at it, I kind of understood obviously why Marito sorry and even Zola they were both kind of going back and forth discussing it why they wanted to make the switch and even Zola was pretty much trying to be like, look, just just come off. Like we have our keeper ready. He wants to come on. And if you're if you're Marito sorry again, you just feel that. All right, I'm I'm trying to make the move here. I'm trying to win a cup. I'm probably possibly fighting for a job if i can win a cup here maybe we got something here maybe we build momentum maybe we get this thing back on track and to kind of be like disrespected in a way just right in front of everybody to say like no i'm not coming off that's something that's very alarming now i don't know if this is again a direct reflection on 
the current state of Chelsea and the locker room because again you can obviously make a point that well if a player's openly you know some a lot of these a lot of times things kind of get behind said behind closed doors and things like that and it never really gets out into the media but you see it live in action on the pitch pretty much saying I'm not coming off I'm not respecting your decision I'm not pretty much respecting your uh, managerial uh, you know position then it could become a problem. Now, again, I have to see what the quotes are in the press. Uh, the presser. Um, it could be something where Saudi does a good job of just burying it. It's, it's water under the bridge, and they move on. But something tells me, again, um, the way it kind of went, way it kind of transpired, that um, it's there's probably more to it. And again, maybe who knows? Maybe there's other players in the squad that maybe feel the same way. But you know, even people brought up a good point. You know, if he did this under uh you know a different manager when you had guys like john terry and uh you know uh, ivanovich uh you know peter check lampard and those guys in the team drogba you know what does that say i think again you really didn't never see such a thing like this and even the commentators were like shocked and just kind of you know shaking their head like that's what's going on here but yeah it's uh it's a it's a weird situation and um you know it's kind of be interesting to see how it kind of shapes up and really how it affects chelsea moving forward yeah, yeah I... I think it's obviously a really strange situation, but one that I don't think we all know the 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 details of properly. Um, I think that when it gets uh, dissected a bit further, it's going to be really interesting. Um, I wonder. I, I just again I'm just wondering if it could have been a misunderstanding because there seemed to be a lot of confusion as well uh, which is obvious when something like this happens I think from you know the whole Chelsea squad and the Chelsea bench Willie Caballero himself uh, another question for you Matt do you think it was quite weird that Gonzalo Higuain didn't take a penalty I don't know if you caught much of the game but um, yeah that that is very strange I mean especially when you consider the fact that um, he's their guy the guy you brought over the, a guy that Marito Saria has worked with in the past obviously at Napoli um, and you know the, you brought you brought him over to replace Morata and give you that that attacking boost up front um, and, and in a penalty shootout you assume that your striker is going to be one of the guys taking a shot right um, so that was kind of strange to me I think you know even people were you know even you know members of the Italian media I think Fabrizio Romano was saying where's Higuain like why is this guy not taking a penalty shot you know um even if again you know maybe uh there's probably going to be jokes and memes made about you know maybe he's a bottler he doesn't make big goals and things like that but i don't think it's i think you there's something there maybe who knows i I just think it's really interesting that marito sorry the guy that you know he wanted to reunite with at chelsea didn't go he didn't take a shot in a, in a, in a cup match uh, for me again I think you know you can look at a couple different things with this match obviously as you just mentioned with Iguain you have Kepa but it's almost like the the plot thickens the drama continues for Chelsea and it's kind of just like something that's avalanching down you wonder if is this the last straw for Chelsea because um as you I mean excuse me for sorry at Chelsea because as you just mentioned you you touched upon it on our account with the upcoming games they have left like when do you make the switch you know so uh, it's it's going to be interesting to watch. Maybe they do it in a similar way that um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer came in, where Mourinho kind of had a few tough games, and then United looked at the run that they have, uh, or they had, which was a, a load of easy games, and they said this is the perfect time to bring in um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Mike Phelan as kind of the backup guy, or not the backup part of the backroom staff. I think it's, uh, again, back on the Higuain thing, it's even weirder considering that Chelsea had three defenders take penalties. Emerson, uh, David Luiz, and Aspilicueta. Mind you, Aspilicueta's one was very good, like top right corner. But Emerson's wasn't. And I know David Luiz has a really good 
um, record on in penalties. Yeah, take, and he takes their uh, ball situations, and he's very good technically. But I just think that if Higuain's there, he's got to be saying to Sarri, you know, after Hazard and, and Jorginho, I'm your number one penalty taker. In fact, now with him, me at the club, after Hazard, I'm the, the number one ten- penalty taker. So for me, that was really strange. But um, I, th- I think we've, we've talked enough about Sarri and then Kepper and Chelsea in general before we turn into... Um, a Chelsea podcast was mentioned. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, Juventus and their general situation in Italy. So, first off, what do you, th- what kind of pressure do you think they're going to be under in this next leg against Atletico? And do you think there's going to be a massive wholesale wholesale change in the summer if they don't progress in the Champions League? Well, I think you know. You look. You even saw. I. It, I don't think there was too much surprise in the way that Juve. Um, came out against Atletico Madrid. I think there was a little bit of a concern already coming into the match because of obviously some of the uh, the recent form for Juve. Um, you know, they were up 3-1 to Parma at home, uh, a place that's, again, a, a notoriously good uh, environment for them to play where it's pretty much a fortress uh, over the years, even in both Serie A and the Champions League. Um, if the fact that they conceded two goals to Parma late um, and then it kind of trickled into uh, the next Champions League game, which obviously there's a lot, there's a lot, to, a lot at stake there. Uh, I think you could really kind of, saw, so you saw the writing on the walls. There's a lot of uh, Juventus fans, you know, even in the build-up when they saw the kind of projected lineup that they thought uh, Allegri was going to go with, they didn't understand. I think most, for the most part, they under, they kind of were on board with the lineup he went with, but they didn't understand why Jao Cancelo didn't start a guy that's probably been the best right back in the world this entire season. Um, he's been. Everything they could have wanted, everything that Inter probably want right now at this point, if they would have taken that option on him. But to put Mattia Dicillo in this match of Champions League, and no, and no discredit to him, he's been pretty decent when he has played for Juve. But you you have to field your best lineup, and especially at Wanda, especially against a team like Atletico Madrid, especially against a manager like Diego Simeone, who knows what it takes to navigate through these tournaments. To, knows how to defend, knows how to attack. Maybe they don't have the same type of firepower that they did in previous years when they made the finals, but they are still a really well-oiled machine, really well-coached, and they do thrive off that home environment. And even defensively, you saw, you know, Godin and Jimenez were amazing in that game, but even Antoine Griezmann showed us just how how spectacular of a player he really can be. Um, and so for me, it was a little bit strange. I think, again, it wasn't too surprising in the sense that because um, Allegri has been come under fire and has been criticized for such a type of approach before, you know, being a little bit too conservative and, you know, not going for a, a more attacking minded approach against certain clubs. Um, he even did this, you can you recall, even in the last game, the last year against Real Madrid, the first match, they were down 3-0 to Real Madrid. And then it took them to have, uh, have a storming comeback in that second leg. And obviously that goal, that, uh, that penalty with Lucas Vasquez and Mario Benatia, um, which Ronaldo obviously buried the penalty and, and eliminated Juve. So I think you, biggest frustration for Juve fans is the fact that they are not so much not confident in that they can overturn this and reverse this fixture, but it's the fact that, well, we shouldn't have to. We're, we got Ronaldo. We have such good talent on this team top to bottom. Why are we always having to play catch-up? Why are we always having to be an underdog situation and have to make it so much more difficult on ourselves than it actually has to be. So I think that's the kind of the biggest thing here. And I even saw the projected lineups and current certain switches he could go with for the second tie. But again, I think if you're a Juventus fan, this is the tournament. This is the trophy that you want. You got Ronaldo for. Why are you not fielding your best lineup? Why are you not 
kind of getting a stranglehold on and saying, we're a top team, we're going to win this thing, we're going to go at you in this way. Now you're in a hole with 2-0 going home. Again, it's not over, but for a team like Atletico Madrid, who again, really well coached, they can defend, they can sit deep, absorb pressure. You wonder if this, again, if this is the kind of the the, uh, the last straw for him, is should they not advance? So um, it's going to be interesting. And even today, you know, the lineup that they fielded against uh, Bologna, they won 1-0, Dybala goal. But again, it just goes to show you there's a lot of fatigue at this point. Um, you know, obviously that happens with many clubs who make these uh, deep runs in the Champions League, the added fixtures later in the season. So it's not surprising. But for a team that has the most depth of any Italian side in Serie A, you expect Allegri to be a little bit more, um, I guess... Uh, in line or in no have the know-how and how to kind of navigate through these these longer seasons and the tournament that's coming up with the you know the round of 16 excuse me uh second leg but but just generally maybe more a bit expansive like to play a brand of football that but this is but this is hasn't but this is some this has been something with him for for really since he's been at Juve he's that even Juventus Juventus fans are kind of almost bored with the way he plays football it gets results I understand that and people and it's funny too because look how much we talk about Maurizio Sarri right he goes such an aesthetically pleasing brand of football has all this gloss and all these different things and this excitement to it but there's no results there's there's the wins are not are not there and then versus Allegri where it's like okay it's not that appealing but he's getting wins so you know, it's kind of it's kind of funny how how football works, but yeah, I agree with you. I, I just don't understand why, you know, you decide to play Jao Cancelo or don't start Jao Cancelo in a match on the road. The the way you want to, uh, if you're going to rest a player, if that's your mindset behind it, saying hey, well, I wanted to rest him. We had a a big match coming up. Then they played Bologna in the in the week. Like you can easily have benched him. Now they started him at like right wing today. Like, you could have played the Shihio in this game and had Jao Cancelo for the more important match. So, to me, I just don't understand it. But I think, again, I think he's um, he's skating on thin ice right now with Juventus fans. And to your point, if uh, they don't get past the round of 16, I can definitely see a change coming in the summer and perhaps Zidane being the next guy. Yeah, it, it seems to be shaping up that way, like the Zidane thing. Um, it's just... I, I find it... When you... When you uh, get someone like Ronaldo in you have a window of opportunity which is like three two three seasons where you could win the Champions League and I think that for the first time last summer apart from Ronaldo I don't know if Juve recruited as well as they could have especially in midfield if you look at the midfields that lined up Juve against Atletico who would you rather have I mean, I don't know. I, I think, again, Juve's in midfield, it, it's not a bad midfield per se, but when you really think about it, is it a midfield that can kind of get you to a Champions League final and win it? I, I don't see that. When you've got Matuidi, who, again, good players. But it is, it's not like a... It's not a Perlo. Exactly. A and I, and, I, and I tweeted that combo, out. I was thinking to myself, look, it's oh, tough, yeah, to, it's did, tough, yeah, to, it's tough <laughs> to get the, that same type of quality because that midfield was stacked. Even Marquisio, when he was kind of uh, a little bit banged up, when he did play, he was class. He played in deeper roles. He had great performances for Juve, even towards the tail end of his career. But Pogba, Vidal, and Pirlo, I mean, that was so balanced. You had everything in that midfield that you could possibly want. Since then, your, your ambitions to get a Champions League trophy have risen year by year but you haven't effectively replaced in the midfield. My thing is, if you're a team like Juve who have the money, you have the wherewithal financially to get the players you need, how how is it that you can't recruit a, maybe not the exact player, but how about an Arthur-type player? 
How about a Frankie De Jong player? A player where, yes, you can stick, like, you have Pjanic, you can kind of, uh, you have certain players, Emery Chan, you guys can ease them in, but you also need to get the actual quality and class that a midfield of, that midfield, that a Juve midfield needs in order to get to the promised land. So that's kind of the biggest thing for me here is that, and then, then you could even see with uh, with Conte when he left, right? He had certain demands he wanted in the market and he didn't get them. That's why he left. So maybe it's something that it's not so much Allegri in this thing. Again, obviously Allegri is to blame for the approach and the actual performance itself. But the board hasn't, in my opinion, hasn't really fulfilled that that mid, that that objective in the midfield. Um, and I know we're going to talk about one of the guys that they're going to be getting in the summer. But it just to me, they're, they're very slim. They're short of the quality that's really required to win this tournament. We've seen Real Madrid, what they have uh, in Casemiro, Modric, like Isco. Those are class midfielders. Like those are class players who can really decide a match. I just don't see that type of quality in Juve's right at the moment. So um, they're good players. They're definitely enough to win the league. There's no question about that. Um, Bar uh, Pjanic, I do think, again, they really do need to maybe get one or two midfielders this summer. I'm sure they would have loved to get a Marco Verratti type player. I think that's the guy they probably would need the most. But um, he keeps signing contract extensions with PSG. He doesn't want to leave. Um, Paris is a beautiful place from what I hear. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they do in the summer, of course, um, yeah, regardless if they want to do get a big-time midfielder um, in addition to Aaron Ramsey, who we're going to talk about. Um, they're definitely going to have to open up the bank because, uh, obviously, midfielders are uh, at a premium. Yeah, and I, I just wonder... I know it's a strange thing to say because I think, for me, he's one of the two best players of all time. Whether or not... Juventus would have been better off using that money, keeping Higuain, who obviously is not a bad striker, especially in um, you know in Serie A, where he has a phenomenal record and he started off in England not not uh, terribly. If they could have used that money to then be in the running for someone like a Frankie De Jong and other players, you mentioned Marco Verratti there. He's going to cost a, a pretty penny if he ever leaves PSG. So I just like. Uh, is the money even there, like there for Juventus um, when it comes to the summer? And the thing is, too, with Juventus, if you look at it, it's not even, it's not just the midfield. Like I feel like they, they're so well stacked up front, and then they attack. But if you really look at the central defense, right, you kind of see uh, the old guard. It's kind of this. It's going to be dismantled. It's kind of deteriorating. Uh, Barzagli's on his last legs. He doesn't play a big role at all. But even Chiellini and Bonucci were exposed in this game. Bonu- uh, Buffon left in the summer. Now you're looking at Juve me needing not only a really good midfielder, but another good central defender because they don't want to be in that position where once those two guys retire, that they got to have a big transitional year and they're really kind of uh, grasping for straws as to who to get to replace them. You know, perfect example of a guy they, they would use would be uh, Delict from Ajax, but he's yeah, going to cost a ton of money. They're not going to be able to get him. To your point, again... Would they have been better going after a different player, um, not, a, not a Ronaldo, getting maybe two different key players to kind of aid in their Champions League run? That's something that's going to be continuously asked if they don't make the Champions League. If they get out of the round of 16 and they don't win, obviously they're out of the Copa Italia, and then obviously they're going to win the league. I mean, they're in a good position now. But to get Ronaldo, for how much you invested in him, you're, yeah, you're probably making your money back, all the, the marketing and, and, and merchandise and all that stuff. But you pretty much took a step back because last year they did win a double they they continually continuously always have won the double but just couldn't win the champions league so now you go from winning two trophies every year to winning one with ronaldo 
there's going to be a lot of questions to be asked. And of course, you can really pin it down to maybe uh, the manager. Again, it's a lot of comes back on the manager, the approach. But I think there's a lot of things at Juve that are going to be uh, addressed in the summer. Even Beppe uh, Marotta's out. So there is changes, yeah. to your point, asking you know if there's going to be wholesale uh, changes going on with Juve. There's a, it's a possibility. But again, I think Agnelli family, they, they kind of like the stability uh, you know, moving forward. So there is a possibility that maybe Allegri stays on. But I guess we really don't know at this point. I did tweet a while ago, and I think I, I've said this on the show before, that I thought there's a chance that Allegri would go, and this was like a couple months ago, and I'm sure people in Italy have been saying this for far longer than that. But I said that because there's these situations in England currently where you have United potentially looking for a manager, Chelsea if stuff with Sarri doesn't work out, um, you know, Unai Emery only has a two-year contract at Arsenal. So you're looking at potentially three clubs that are open or maybe looking for managers. And then, of course, you've got the uh, situations around Europe. We've talked about Nico Kovac at Bayern Munich. There's a chance that uh, Real Madrid, of course, there are chances that some of these things just don't work out uh, for these managers, even though some of them have been given kind of like second lifelines. And Allegri with his track record, could elevate one of these teams however maybe his stock value has dropped uh with this final season if they get knocked out of the champions league with the team he has or with ronaldo it remains to be seen it's it's an interesting situation though and you know after us saying that they were one of the favorites in the champions league last episode it wouldn't be a surprise if they beat uh atletico madrid 3-0 in the next well, leg. The, well the thing is too is that we talked about it right we talked about you know that they do have yeah. one of the, the more difficult draws right it wouldn't surprise me to see them bow out obviously a team like again atletico have been here before they know exactly how to get through to the next round progress and do everything they need to do um so that's something again to keep in mind but you know you know again if you're a juventus fan Obviously, you're going to win the league, but I think it's we, we're beyond that. They're beyond that at this point. They want, they're going to win their eighth in a row. It's okay. Well, Champions League, and if this is a showing that Allegri's going to show, uh, put out in his uh, in, in this year with re- the addition of Ronaldo, then he's got to go. Of course, Allegri's going to have options, in my opinion. I think again, he could go to England. I don't think Chelsea are going to go for another Italian manager. I'd be shocked if they do. Um, some people have said Real Madrid. Maybe our Real Madrid look for Conte, but um, who who really knows at this point? Again, the the managerial situations around Europe is always interesting, um, and it's just always something to keep an eye on because um, you know there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, yeah. certainly so, and I think it's strange yeah the Italian I would have said I would have pegged uh, Allegri to, to a Chelsea role if uh, Sarri didn't work out so badly or so far and there's been that distaste between fan and team um, it, it just is it's a strange situation with Juve at the moment because if you compare it to a PSG for example they haven't really added that many players in the summer and in January and Thomas Tuchel has has done a, a great job. With Juventus, the board can turn around and say, look, we gave you Ronaldo um, and you've done worse than last season. We've got to have a conversation. And I think he'll probably leave on his own accord. But um, well, what about Aaron Ramsey then? That's the next thing that we want to talk about. There was a lot made up in the, in the UK media that he will be making a ridiculous amount of money. And, and I think a lot of Arsenal fans, including myself, were kind of like, well, uh, see you later, Aaron, because we were obviously never going to give you that money. Yeah, um, Aaron Ramsey's always been a midfielder, and then a, that that you would probably agree with me on this is that always obviously has class. He's always a, he's he's been a very good midfielder when he has been uh, healthy on the pitch and really playing a key role for Arsenal. But I think again, 
is he an, uh, that midfielder that moves the needle for you if you're Ventus? And I think the way I look at it is, no, he's another piece of the puzzle. He's another guy that maybe, um, you know, Kadira's gone, so maybe he steps in for a Kadira. He's that maybe fourth or fifth option. Um, you know, Emery Chan, again, they got him on a free transfer from Liverpool. He's not that move-the-needle type midfielder. He's just not. You look at every every midfielder that Juventus currently have at the moment. They're good midfielders, but they're not world-class. There's only a handful of world-class to throw that label around so loosely nowadays. Um, it seems to happen quite often. But, yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think, again, Juventus are probably overpaying him in the wages because they're not paying a transfer fee. So I, I could understand that. But at the same time, again, it, if I'm if I'm a Juventus fan looking at this, obviously I'm a huge Serie A guy. I just don't. If I'm looking at Juventus and saying, "Well, we got Aaron Ramsey," if that's the only midfielder they get, shame on them because you're, again, you're buying, you put so much stock in, into this three year, uh, this these three years. The first one, obviously, being now with Ronaldo, that you can't be making those sort of just only those sort of additions with the midfield. We understand the business they've been able to do and accomplish um, via free transfers, and that's fantastic. It's a great way to bolster and round out your squad. But very few times are you going to be able to get a really world class player for free. And again, obviously Chelsea have their own situation to deal with with Eden Hazard and their transfer ban. So that's going to be something to kind of keep an eye on. Um, Obviously, if they do sell him a year prematurely before his contract expires, they really do want to get a replacement right then and there. But again, I just, for me, a midfielder that uh, is is class on his day, he can bring quite a bit to uh, Juventus. Um, I'm not saying he can't. But um, I, I just still think the jury's out on a, on, a, on a midfielder who, again, who does have an injury record. Um, he's going to be making a ton of money, and he's really not going to be playing, in my opinion, a key role. I totally, I totally agree, with, agree with most of what you've said there. Is he the guy that's going to elevate uh, Juventus? No, because he's in that same category of good to very good midfielders, but not exceptional. And I think that... Although he's loved by Arsenal fans and an Arsenal legend in his own right, but there's always been people, uh, myself included, who have doubted him in the past and been like, look, he's injury prone. Um, he, he's not really, at, at times, fulfilled this potential because at one point, you know, this guy was looking at becoming one of the best number eights in the world. And it's weird that, you know, he's had two managers at Arsenal now and neither of them have had him as, you know, the first name on the team sheet which is a a concern for Juventus fans because I'm not sure he's the first name on the team sheet for Juventus either or even in that midfield he's going to be competing with Pjanic with Matuidi with Emre Can who are again all good in their own right but I think they're all of a similar level probably Pjanic your degree is is the best out of that crop but I just again it's a it's a big money move whether you think it's free or not because correct me if I'm not wrong it's like 100 million euros over 4 years or something ridiculous like that and he's nearly 29 and he's got a big injury record again I think he's going to again. be um I think he's going to be the way I think it's the way it checks out um net wages I think he's going to be Juventus's second most highest paid player which Again, uh, you know, I'm not saying this is going to have an effect on, you know, certain players in the squad, but if you're a Paolo Dybala who's given the number 10 shirt, you know, considered like the one of the core players for your team, you know, then you got to wonder, well, hey, this guy's just coming in on the free transfer and he's already getting paid more than me, like, and I'm playing out of position to accommodate the rest of that squad. 
I, I don't know. You know, that's just again something to keep in mind. But maybe this is maybe this is a situation where you know they're looking and saying, "Look, Aaron Ramsey's another he's another piece of the puzzle. Um, we're gonna be lose. We're gonna be shedding Sami Kadira. We're gonna be shedding certain players, Andrea Barzagli. Um, you know, so on and so forth. So who knows at this point? But again, to your point, I agree. I just think that uh, you he's not a move the needle type player. He's not a player that's going to uh, he pl- he probably won't play a key role. And then you know, it's it's funny if Allegri does stay on. Even he has kind of had questionable decisions and, and, and selection choices uh, with regards to the, the, the starting eleven. You know, it seems as though Kadira there has no future in the squad yet. Somehow he's getting a ton of minutes despite being a little bit injury prone, despite being um, you know ineffective, and he still gets the opportunity. So you wonder, uh, maybe this is uh, a signing with the future in mind of their manager they're going to go with. Right, because you're tying up a lot of money into him in terms of wages. This is a, it's a contract that, again, to your point, um, is going to be uh, occupying quite a bit of on the books. So maybe that's something that's, to, that's something to keep in mind if they can maybe sell a couple of players. They have done a great job of selling, um, and I don't know if you've been keeping track of that the actual numbers they've been uh, you know getting in for uh, certain players. But um, you know, a lot of youngsters being sold. Even they sold Stefano Sturaro to Genoa as their most expensive player ever, which is kind of strange, but. Um, I, I don't want to go into any type of conspiracy theories, but I, uh, I, I won't. <laughs> um, but yeah, they are have been doing pretty good in the selling side of things. So maybe, again, he's just a piece of the puzzle. But uh, I don't think that's really what Juventus need at the moment. I don't think that's what Juventini want to hear. And I guess you've just kind of uh, turned the cog in my mind. If you are Juventus, why have you invested this much money in a guy when you don't know who the manager is going to be come the summer. Imagine if you bring someone in who doesn't really like Aaron Ramsey. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> definitely true. I mean, I mean, uh, there's a who knows? Maybe it's Arsene Wenger's coming in as yeah, a Chelsea yeah, yeah. as a Juventus manager. But I, it's going to be weird. It's going to be weird to see again. Maybe um, they're thinking with you know, maybe they're thinking with Zidane in mind. You know, maybe Aaron Ramsey's a fit under Zidane. Maybe Zidane's the guy that could kind of you know get him to that next level. Um, he's still in the prime of his career. I still believe he has um, more to offer. I think he still has another level in his game. But again, fitness. Uh, being able to kind of translate that success um, from Arsenal over to Juventus in Italy, it, it's going to be remain. It remains to be seen. I think for me, again, there's going to be people that look at the fees and look at the wages—not the fees, but the wages that he's going to be taking up—and saying and thinking, "Well, we could have got this. We could have used this on another top player because he's getting paid like one of the best midfielders in the world." Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just don't understand that move in terms of the actual financial side of things. If it's if if you're if you're Juventus and you're thinking, well, we're, he's a good player, we're not paying a transfer fee, so let's kind of make it up in the in the wages. I guess because he's an again a piece of the puzzle, he's another good midfield addition that we're maybe going to replace him uh, with Asami Kadira. But um, he's just not the type of guy that I think Juventus fans um, need and and want at this moment in time. Yeah, I I think it's uh, again. When I think the more I think about that managerial thing, the stranger signing it, it seems to me. But you know, fair play to Aaron Ramsey; he's got in a massive contract in a oh, yeah, good a, on him, good on his agent, great city. Yeah, his <laughs> agent. I mean, <laughs> there was uh, he, he did some weird things there, agent uh, or his agency's Twitter team. Uh, like there was a game where he wasn't in the squad or the starting lineup, and they quote retweeted it with like a, a waving emoji, like goodbye, which was really strange. But you know, I guess. Uh, bridges were burnt there that were <laughs> irreparable. But Matt, we're going to talk about 
Another Arsenal tangent. Sorry, you guys, obviously, being an Arsenal fan. But this has actually been quite a big story the last couple of weeks. So I guess Matt said I was allowed to, to bring it up. And this is uh, Monkey potentially coming to Arsenal in the summer from Roma. Yeah, um, this is something that's... Uh, it's it's not that it's picking up more steam by the day or by the week, but it has been something that has been talked about uh, really since the beginning of the season. There have been reports that um, you know he does want to reunite with Unai Emery. Of course, they had a lot of success together at Sevilla. Um, for me, I was talking with my buddies. We were in New York yesterday walking to uh, a bar to watch Newcastle Huddersfield. And uh, it's funny enough, we were talking about this, thinking that, well, would he leave? He's not the type of guy, in my opinion, as a sporting director... Um, to leave so soon in a project where he does have a lot of, you know, he has a lot of control, a lot of say in what goes on in terms of obviously as a sporting director, recruiting certain players. I mean, you saw how many guys they brought in last summer, right? Yeah. He was the guy that brought over Chingis Under, who has been a, uh, despite the recent injuries, has been a great find for them and a guy that's going to get fetch them a big profit. But I think if you're Monchi and you're thinking, well, look, I, I'm at Roma. I think maybe I've done all I can probably do with this club. Then I can see him wanting to go to Arsenal again. England is for most for most managers, most directors, for many players is the kind of the pinnacle of football where you want to kind of really go and kind of test yourself. Um, so I could understand it from that regard. Look, England is always going to have appeal. Arsenal always is always going to have appeal, and especially when you have, you can be able to reunite with a familiar face who kind of understands what your um, who you are as a professional, who you are as a director, and who you are ultimately in the world of football. So if, if I'm an Arsenal fan, you know, in this situation, I'd love to get a guy like Monkey. I mean, even he was linked with, um, uh, loosely at least, with uh, Manchester United. I think if you're able to give a, man, uh, a guy like Monkey that flexibility, that bigger budget, maybe he knows. Maybe he's able to move Arsenal to the next level, maybe have them compete for a title. Who really knows? But I, it's interesting. We always see this with certain managers, right, and certain directors where they kind of seem like, if I just had a little bit more flexibility financially, I can get a little bit more talent and maybe you know achieve a little bit more. So, um, look, if I'm if I'm Roma, I would love to keep Monkey because I think they're still in a position where they're not, not they're not really quite able to splash the money and compete on that on that you know level with Juve but at the same time you kind of invested in the guy you give him two years you kind of got a lot of players under his watch he has done a great job in recruiting that he's always going to be able to do that but you just wonder that is if he's kind of thinking well we who's my manager who's the manager going to be you know are you going to be able to keep some of these players year to year I'm not too sure I think he and he is a manager is a director that probably likes a little bit more stability with his job but if he can reunite with Unai Emery, then maybe he got something there. But to your point earlier, he's on a two-year contract, Unai Emery. Is Unai Emery going to be the long-term option? So there's a lot of kind of moving parts here. Again, if they do bring over Monkey, I will say this. If they do find a way to convince Monkey to come over to Arsenal, that gives me reason to believe that perhaps they want to keep Unai Emery beyond the two years. Potentially, but there's also, I guess, Raul Salani, who's, um, who's also Spanish and knows Monkey from... You know uh, his t- his time at Sevilla and when Raúl was at Barcelona, obviously quite like kind of rates him quite highly. So I think maybe even if Unai wasn't there, that they'd well obviously this is a a greater pull because he can he can link up with an old pal. But I've read stuff that apparently he only has a three million euro buyout thing, which is kind of crazy considering how pivotal he is to Roma's rebuilding process and I thought this about Sven Misseltat as well when Arsenal poached him from Dortmund for only like 2 million euros when is it when are we going to get to a point here Matt where these guys these technical directors these coaches these managers are actually 
like worth a lot of money. I, I think that we've talked about on this podcast where Man United might have to pay a lot of money from Rizzo Pochettino. Why are Arsenal able to get two of the best recruiting guys for a combined fee of basically five and a half million, which gets you literally nothing in terms of players these days? Yeah, you you bring up a great, an excellent point. You know, and I even talked about this. You can even make the comparison to uh, Milan, right? When you, it's amazing how influential and how big of an impact a director can be and have on a club. They brought in Milan, brought in Leonardo, and the, the guys he has been able to recruit just by being obviously Leonardo having that connection to um, Brazil and Milan is able to bring in Piontek, be able to bring in Paqueta, your players that maybe otherwise Milan probably wouldn't have been able to recruit under Fasone and Mirabelli. So again, I think we're going to really start to see the uh, the paradigm shift towards the uh, the buyouts being a lot higher on sporting directors because again, you know, if you have a guy like Monkey who's he has a wealth of knowledge, he has a, such a, a wide broadcast of uh, in terms of the scouting network that he's able to uh, effectively recruit talent for. You wonder if I mean three million in our, that's a drop in the bucket for Arsenal. It's a drop in the bucket for pretty much any Premier League team. So if you're Arsenal, and you're thinking, yeah, I'll, I'll put the three million down, no problem, because because what it'll do is he'll be able to recruit and he'll be able to kind of build and, and effectively scout the the players that we need to get to the next level and give him the financial flexibility that he needs to do it. So uh, I think it's it's something to keep in mind. I I wouldn't be surprised either way, but I think again, if I had to guess, he's a guy that is maybe he doesn't have um, is not quite finished with business at Roma. I think again, a lot will stem on if they finish top four. If they don't finish top four, then maybe he's saying, look, I mean, you're going to be selling Chingis Under possibly. We didn't finish top four. I think I've probably reached my limit here. Let's let's go on and move towards Arsenal. So uh, it's, it remains to be seen. And, and also, I guess he, he, he doesn't leave them in a terrible place, right? They've got Under, Cliver and Zaniolo as that kind of attacking trio who are worth... A ridiculous amount combined um the, and you know they've got other players like pellegrini who hold quite a lot of weight uh in terms of a transfer uh, potential transfer so i guess he's not exactly leaving roma uh skin or in a terrible situation but if you're an arsenal fan here matt and you know you're are you excited by potentially monkey coming in like can you tell us more about him a little bit I would be, uh, and the reason why I'm saying is that again, I I've seen my well, my club has benefited from having a strong sporting director who's able to have a lot of pull and a lot of attraction uh, in bringing players to the club. Uh, again, Milan, they're able to have Leonardo. The fact that they're able to have him, I think, played a huge role in why they're able to get Piontek, why they're able to get Baqueta. Uh, Two players that could have very easily waited till the summer and saying, I want a more stable project. I could probably get paid more in England because Piontek was linked with West Ham. He was linked with Napoli. He probably could have got paid a little bit more elsewhere and maybe been able to compete for a trophy this season. But I think, again, it's a testament to who... And, and, so, and so was Paqueta. Exactly. Right? And Paqueta had tons of interest. PSG, I think Real Madrid. Man City, A 21-year-old Brazilian like him. I think it's obvious he's going to have a lot of attraction. The fact that they were able to get both of them for $35 million, um, and and the fact that they bought into Milan's project as a whole with Maldini and Ivan Gassidis, the former CEO of Arsenal, I think, again, it just goes to show you how impactful a sporting director can be. For Monkey, he does have, obviously, a good CV. He was able to accomplish quite a bit as a director um, at Sevilla. They won, I think, three Europa League uh, Europa League uh, Cups in a row, if I'm correct. Yeah. And then he went to uh, Roma. They made a great run last year in the Champions League. They finished top three. Um, so I think, again, a lot's going to hinge on what Roma's standing is at the end of the season when it's all said and done. If they get tro- if they become trophyless, 
um, they don't finish top four, then I think Monkey could say, well, I mean, look, at two years, I, I gave you some really big assets that you could sell for profit. Um, I've kind of laid the bl blueprint for Roma moving forward. Um, and then you know, now, now is my time to move on. But again, for me, I look at Monkey and maybe he's thinking, maybe another year or two. I think, again, I need just a little bit more time because obviously we see with even Arsenal, right? You know, with Unai Emery, I think we start to see there's there's potential in his project. There's potential in him coaching Arsenal. But sometimes it's just not a one or two year thing. Sometimes it's a three year thing, like a three year project, a three year plan where you say, you know, at year three, we have our nucleus. We have our foundation through multiple summers of, of buying. Now we have our now we have our core group that we can move forward with and start competing for trophies, which obviously is what Arsenal want to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I think there's the added notion at Arsenal, for example, that there might not be that much money in the summer, and then they might need someone to raise funds by selling players. And obviously, there aren't that many better in the business than selling players. And a lot of Arsenal fans have been critical of how poor Arsenal have been when it comes to selling players. You know, you're talking about a club who sold Robert Van Persie for 24 million. You're talking about a club that let Alexis Sanchez uh, go for free, where they could have uh, sold him for 50, 60 million uh, in the, the summer before that. So. Someone like Monchi won't let that happen. And if if they say to him, look, we want it, we want you to do as much as you can with this pot of money this summer, but next summer you'll have a lot more. But do as well as you can. I think it might be a challenge for him. And obviously that link with Unai and Rao and coming to England, it could be quite interesting. But I think we're going to end that one there. I think the general consensus was if you're a football club, stop putting massive buyout clauses on all of your staff as well as your players. Um but we're going to talk a bit about VAR because there's been quite a few controversial things that have happened recently, Matt, which I guess has prompted a lot of discussion around this. Some people seem to love it. Some people seem to hate it. But for me, again, watching the League Cup today, um, we had a situation in literally the last minute of the game where I think it was normal time, regulation time, where Barkley played a through ball to, to Eden Hazard and he looked offside, you know, when you were watching. But when the replays showed he was kind of onside and I say kind of he was pretty much in line and what the assistant referee did he put his flag up straight away when obviously they've been instructed to kind of keep it down until the action is finished and then they'll review it um what is it is it the associate uh, sorry is it the kind of referee's fault at this point in time that this isn't working as well as it could do I'm not. I think it's you know. I think there's 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 so much. Despite having the uh, replay as a kind of a fallback, we see it in so many other sports, right? Specifically NFL, where it has such a huge impact on the game. Um, and it's crazy to think is that because you know even when you have the replay, they're still getting it wrong. Even in that game against the Saints, the Saints and the Rams, right? Clear pass, clear pass interference call that just didn't get called. So there is still that human element that is kind of has its place with VAR. Now, for, for me as a Serie A guy, you know, Serie A was shockingly enough one of the first leagues to get VAR. And, you know, a couple years in, I think, again, it has done a great job, all things considered, in clearing up some of those, you know, iffy decisions to be made. Uh, but there is still those, there's those instances where you're looking at it and you're saying, how is, this, how is this not even being looked at? And that's happened many times with Milan. It happened in the, uh, the Italian Super Cup with Milan and Juventus. Just it's kind of one of those things where maybe in five, maybe you know, it's going to take three to four, five years for it to really be like, 
laid out, defined, and literally be a little bit more consistent because I still think consistency is the key here and it's lacking at the moment. Um, I think it, it, overall, you know, we saw how it's, uh, how it's been used uh, briefly in the, uh, the round of 16, the Champions League, the first time that the VAR has been used in the Champions League. And I think, obviously, it's been a long time coming, right? I think for a tournament that's so important, um, you'd expect it to be done a lot earlier. But in any case, better better late than never, I guess. But overall, I think they did a pretty good job in in in, in kind of uh, you know getting the calls right, but not slowing the pace, not keeping the game from uh, losing some of its luster and some of its some of its excitement. Uh, you know, even again, I watched the Juventus Atletico game, and I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking the Morata goal that was wiped off. I'm looking, is there? This you you want VAR to get the right calls, but you don't want VAR to kind of over over uh, position itself and have so much of an impact where it's like you're over officiating well there's a little yeah. bit of contact we're gonna do it's like Chiellini's a big guy Morata's not the type of guy to push him down that shouldn't have been ruled off in my opinion some people would disagree but I just think again there's got to be something that you know maybe the leagues come together FIFA and UEFA comes together and they kind of make it a little bit more uh, streamlined a little bit more uh, that the, the guidelines and the rules for VAR and going to VAR and for making certain decisions is a little bit more in line as a, as a collective versus having like where one league it's this and one league it looks like they're going to be able to do this. The Champions League is another way. I, I think the Champions League, they moved it pretty quickly. Again, I think that's a key thing here. When people, when they when they heard of VAR, you think of the human element, the human error, you know, the taking away the, the pace of the game. That doesn't want to be taken away. And I understand that. But I think, again, all in all, the Champions League in the, in the first uh, set of uh, round of 16 legs did a good job of getting the right calls, but doing it in a way that's quickly, that didn't kind of infringe on the actual quality and pace of the game. Sorry, I, I just, I, as we're speaking, uh, uh, Inter Milan have just been given the penalty and is potentially... I'm watching it most... too. I'm like glancing at it on my iPad. <laughs> one of the most blatant handballs I've ever seen, I think from, uh, is it Gerson? But it's it's just ridiculous. He just literally jumps and, and hits the, the ball with his arm. Um, but again, yeah, I mean, it's funny we're slagging it off, but it's, it's done a quite good job there. For me, I thought the thing was when it was, you know, at the World Cup, introduced at the World Cup, that it was going to be only put into place or used when... Um, when the mistakes were obvious do you know what i mean like so for example with the example that you just gave which is uh you know chiellini getting the nudge and going to ground if you're a referee do you look at that and say ah i made an obvious error there it's really blatant that i made an error there i don't think if i was an official i could look at that and say I've really, really messed up here. We've got to rectify this decision. And usually, and usually, what happens too is that you know, even in, again, just to make the comparison to NFL, usually, the, if, if the, whatever the initial calling is, if they can't get substantial evidence to overturn it, they won't overturn it. If I'm looking at it, like like perfect example right there, like if you're looking at it and uh, Ed Millicent gets a handball and it's not called, and you look at it, like okay, well, I, clear, I clearly got this wrong. Let me make the decision. Okay, fine. But if you're looking at it and you're like. It's a 50-50 call. It could go either way. And in my opinion, it was probably 70-30. Again, I think Morata got above Chiellini. Chiellini was slight, uh, late getting to his spot. Morata finished off the goal. And again, for Chiellini, a bigger defense, uh, a bigger uh, no-nonsense physical defender to kind of go down the way he did, it looks like he made a meal of it. And he even had the thing where um, the other goal, I think it was, if I'm correct, it was either Jimenez, where... Bonucci apparently went like went down. He started covering his face, but before he started covering his face, he looked to see if the goal went in, and then he started covering his face again, like, and they're appealing for penalty again. Like, 
I just don't like the fact that, again, it's kind of taking the... You have to ultimately rely on the referee to make the right decisions. It's supposed to be a supportive tool, not so, not supposed to kind of be able to bail them out. Well, okay, well, I'm going to do this now, you know, or I'm going to make this decision just so I can go to VAR. That's the one thing I don't like about it. Again, it's supposed to be there for those iffy calls, the onside, offside, those sort of things, versus having saying, well, yeah, let's just look at it. We have VAR. You know, if there's a contact, well, let's overrule it. I, I just don't like it. Again, if it was blatant, fine. But for it, for it to be so... Uh, so such in a gray area in terms of the contact, in terms of the actual decision that you're able to kind of overrule it. Everyone was shocked. And again, the fact that so many people were shocked by it just goes to show you again that VAR is really just has that gray area, has a little bit of inconsistency that needs to be ironed out. So I think for me, there's one, these calls where they're kind of like 50-50, 60-40 that maybe shouldn't be ruled over. Uh, ruled over. And then there's the offsides where the assistants shouldn't be raising their flags until the action is finished. Thirdly, I think handball is a big one. And it's, you know, it's surprising to me we haven't mentioned it yet. But if you saw the Man City Schalke game where, right. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, I forgot who shot. But uh, Bentelman, right? Bentelman had the penalty. Bentelman had the yeah. penalty. But, but yeah, yeah, he shot. And Otamendi, I mean, it, for me, I thought it was a penalty. But there were a lot of people who said that it wasn't and they didn't think it was. And in real time, it it didn't really look like a penalty. So for me, if you're looking at that at VAR, can you definitively say, oh, it's definitely like, you know, it's it's a it's a flip, not a flip of the coin. You're, you're literally uh, changing color. It's it's another page. It's a complete opposite decision. I just don't think it was because for me it was kind of a penalty but i spoke to loads of people who didn't think it was a penalty i agree if you have to have if again whatever that you have to go with whatever the ruling on the on the pitch was if the if it was on the pitch that it was not a handball or it was a handball and it's so close that it's like it, you have to have substantial evidence is what i'm saying to actually overturn a decision that you've already made that's my opinion i don't think you can be because again then there's going to be a refereeing referees and official officials that use it as a bailout Okay, well, oh, we have VAR. Let's just go to it and let's see what we got. Oh, man, I mean, there's some contact there. Let's overrule it now. Like, I, I don't like having the VAR dictate so much of the game unless it's warranted. And if, if you get what I'm saying, and, you know, obviously, when we saw the goal line technology, that's been a great addition. I think there's really no clear, uh, there's no concern. There's, there's nothing with that because it's either it's over completely or it's not. And I think, again, that's it's kind of clear cut. But when it comes to contacts and all these different things, the handball has always been a one that always been a, a, a an instance and that's always so difficult to kind of uh, determine. Did he tuck? Did he deliberately go in and try to hit it? Did his arm tucked in? Where do you put your arms? Like at that point, you might as well cut your arms off because you can't touch the ball. So, again, I just don't like the fact that it has too much of a, of a say in the outcome of games and really the, um, you know, and you can say outcome of games because uh, a one goal here, one goal there can obviously sway an entire two-leg tie. So, um, I think, again, in time, I think VAR will be, will be a little bit more uh, consistent. But I think right now, I mean, if you're looking at even Serie A, which has been um, very controversial with VAR the entire season, um, I think there's then definitely some room for improvement. I think the handball rule needs to be looked at in general. Um, but I think that VAR has... It's going through some teething problems at the moment, and I think that it will continue to do so this season. But next season, you know, we're going to see it in the Premier League, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be really interesting to see how that works out because I think, as as you know and I know, the English media are... Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> are like no other. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's time for our, our player profile, uh, Matt, at, at this point in time. 
So today I, we're going to talk about Dwight McNeil. Uh, I'm not sure how much you know about him, Matt, but he's a guy that's kind of just burst on the team here in uh, in the UK. He plays for Burnley, who are one of the smaller clubs in in the Premier League, who have been managed by Sean Dyche, the the same manager that brought them up from the Championship a few seasons ago. And they have you know infamously got pretty much no money. They spend very little money, and they were on a pretty bad run until a former Manchester. Manchester United Academy graduate uh, started playing uh, for them on the left side of their 4-4-2 and he's been an absolute revelation he's left-footed quite tall quite quick um, very technically good and it's it's strange because Sean Dyche is a guy that doesn't has never historically in his time in the Premier League given any minutes to uh, teenagers. You're talking about, you know, a very old-fashioned manager uh, who plays the 4-4-2, who plays, you know, I've, I've made jokes with people at work that, you know, the strikers, they've got Sam Vokes, Chris Wood, Ashley Barnes, they're pretty much all the same player. They are the same person. So you're talking about a guy who who knows what he likes in a player and kind of sticks to that winning recipe. Or not that winning recipe, the recipe that keeps Burnley, Burnley up. If you go over to kind of bookies and uh, any uh, betting websites, Burnley are always favourites to go down or one of the three teams that are favourites to go down. And Sean Dyche somehow manages to keep them up. But now it seems that they finally got that guy who is technically a level above maybe most of the team. And he's only 19 he's scored uh he's scored goals he's he's been assisting quite regularly um and he he actually had a assist for a goal against Tottenham the other day but is a guy that's really interesting and I think it'll be really interesting to our listeners because if you're not based in the UK this is someone that um you know you might not have heard of before and it's someone that uh will maybe drum up some interest from Premier League clubs in in the summer because you're looking again at a team like Burnley that I mentioned who have pretty much no money um i'm trying to think of that old question that we always do matt where is who would you compare him to uh and i just i don't really know he's got a little bit of a perisic about him which is which is kind of a a a big a big thing not as two-footed but definitely kind of in terms of his stature the way he drives to the byline and, and always constantly yeah constantly crosses the ball um but technically he's he feels a bit more um like he's got a bit more of like a wand of a left foot if that makes sense you know that the commentators always love using that about you know the david silvers the bernardo silvers of this world but he's definitely got that ability as well so it's definitely a guy that i've been you know excited about that when i've watched him and um i know burnley fans really rate him highly and i watched him first time for for 90 minutes against tottenham uh, the other day and i was i was really impressed so a guy that i think people should should keep an eye on Huh, sounds interesting, actually. You know, again, you know, we we do we've talked on this podcast quite a bit about you know some of the big name prospects, and and obviously it's, it's always good to bring them to light and you know kind of shed for uh, you know shed further light on what they can uh, project to be. But you know, talking about you know some of those players that are wandering in the lower clubs and making a name for themselves um it's certainly interesting again you know to your point having that connection to manchester united you know it could be one of those cases where you know maybe manchester united is one of the one of those it's one of those cases where a player slips through the cracks you don't really know what type of player he is he kind of goes to another club he gets uh, the opportunity that he really just needed to kind of show what he's about and then he makes those moves and maybe who knows down the line he plays for a rival of manchester united so 
Um, I think, again, he's one of those players, and based off what you're telling me, who, um, you know, again, he, you know, maybe not so much make the move now. Um, you know, or not now, but in the summer, maybe he still needs to be another season there. But it wouldn't surprise you to see him be like the next in line because, again, the trend is to buy young, uh, invest in young players, groom them, get them to buy into the culture of your club, a big club environment. Um, you know, you could even make a case with, um, we talked about it, Reese Nelson, right? You know, obviously he's going on loan, he's producing, he's doing well, but he still has to be able to come back to the club and effectively, you know, you know acclimate, you know, get settled into the culture, know what it's about to play for Arsenal Football Club. So um, it's going to be interesting to see, though, again, with McNeil, how uh, they, they finish off the season. Again, you know, if he if he has a great second half and he's able to kind of, again, be a large, play a large part in Burnley staying up, um, as you just mentioned, a team that's always uh, notorious for being one of the first, uh, the top three to drop. Um, that's only going to raise his stock. That's only going to make him a little bit more of a household name in time. And maybe down the line, he'll make a big move. Definitely. Definitely. And I'm just looking at some stuff here, right? Uh, Burnley had lost six of seven games. Um, and they'd lost to Everton at home 5-1. Dwight McNeil started a game against West Ham, which they won 2-0, and they haven't lost since. This is on the 30th of December. This is their longest unbeaten record ever in their histories, or in the Premier League for certain, and it, I think it's their longest unbeaten run since like 1990 or something like that, or 1999, some, one of the two. Uh, and I'm not saying it's all because of Dwight McNeil, <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But sometimes but sometimes that young yeah. player, that fledging youth player, has that impact on the team where, again, we even seen it in, in spurts with uh, Roman Zaniolo mm. when they first started playing him regularly as a starter. It's kind of like you look around, like, man, this guy's like, impressive. Like, he's a young kid who has not even an ounce of the experience that we do, yet he's kind of you know, playing above, he's uh, punching above his weight. So it's not surprising to see a player like McNeil or, you know, uh, players of his age have such an impact because when you see them, it's just obvious. It's, it's exciting as a player to play with a guy like that. And it only kind of forces you to raise your game to his level. A hundred percent. And I think looking at the league table now, Burnley only probably need about six to nine points from their eleven, uh, from their remaining 11 games to stay up, which is totally doable, um, especially on the form that they're on, the unbeaten run that they're currently on. But uh, right, Matt, uh, before we go, obviously we're famed for the, uh, or we like to think that we're famed from the for the uh, player profile section. We've actually started to get a few more questions in, which is awesome. Um, we got a question from someone, and I think we got two questions actually. I'll read one, then you can read one. The first one was from uh, at Maestro Labile. So uh, Paul Labille Pogba, I think he's uh, uh, kind of alluding to there. He says, would a playoff style system for the Premier League work or would it fail? Uh, I don't I don't know. I think, again, it's it's for me, I'm so used for me, for me, at least I'm so used to the, the way things are that a playoff system would kind of be one of those things where it wouldn't so much determine who the best club is. I think it would be really exciting because obviously tournament play in, in any sport, um, and obviously we see what the what effect it has in March Madness, uh, you know, NCAA basketball, where even if you have the one versus 16 or the two versus 15, like there's always that room for a possible upset. And on any day, um, there can be an upset, a team that, you know, if you're not, if you don't show up in like a city or a Liverpool doesn't show up to play their best game, they can be humbled. They can be beaten by a, a lesser team like a Burnley or, you know, maybe a Wolves as a couple examples. But I just don't like that. For me, I don't like deciding who a title, uh, a title winner should be, based off a short, you no, know, a short 
tournament, if you will. Um, so which again, that to my to getting back to the main question, uh, I, I wouldn't think it would work. But uh, there's some people that do like it. Again, I think you can you can make a case in certain sports it does work. Um, basketball is a big one. Football is a big one. But even again, getting to football, right? American football with the, the Giants, right? They kind of backed their way into the playoffs, their first Super Bowl, and they wound up beating um, an undefeated uh, Patriots team. Are the Giants really the best team? No. Patriots were the best team the entire year. But on that day, Giants just found a way to win. So it really is not the best way to determine who the best club is uh, that year. And I, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think also because of the nature of football where you're not only competing for the league. In America or most US sports, it's you're competing for one trophy, right? In, you know, for example, the Premier League, if you're a team in the Premier League, you are competing for up to four trophies if you play in Europe and in those other three trophies it isn't always the best team who wins it's the team who plays well or uh, the best throughout that tournament and I I don't know I just don't think it would work in the Premier League and I think um, it, yeah it would it would be a complete revamp and of, of everything and it would uh, it, I don't just don't think it would fit in with the culture that people are used to here in the UK um, but, but we had another question, didn't we, uh, Matt? I, I don't know if you want to read that one out. Sure. So this is from my friend Roberto Grosso. Um, shout out to him. He's a goalkeeping expert. Definitely go check him out on Twitter, at rgrosso84. His question or pretty much was uh, leading up to Sigo Sirigu, uh, Salvatore Sirigu, Thai international goalkeeper, has been a wall for the Granata Torino with 11 clean sheets to date. Can Torino find themselves in Europe next season? And can Sirigu be considered Torino's most valuable player this season? So Torino are in a really good position right now, currently, for the Europa League. Um, that's been one of the, the more interesting races um, in Italy, aside from the, who's going to finish third and fourth in the Champions League. The teams every other week seem to be jumping in and out of that conversation for the Europa League. And Torino's been one of those cases where, they, again, they finally have a, a pretty good manager in uh, Walter Mazzari, um, you know, and he's doing a pretty good job at the moment with them. Um, as obviously uh, Roberto alluded to, Sirigo has been a force for them. Even once he left PSG, I think he went to Girona on loan. That was kind of a struggle for him. Um, but really since coming back to Italy, um, which is, again, uh, you know, familiar territory, obviously the language and everything like that, um, he's been a breath of fresh air for Torino. He's given them some stability in net, um, a veteran presence for a team that's mostly young um, but does have quite a bit of talent. Obviously, Ola Anna, who's on loan at, uh, from Chelsea, um, he's been a, a standout player for them as well. And even despite Andrea Bellotti um, having a down year and really kind of uh, free-falling in terms of form since he had a great year a couple of seasons ago, um, you know, Torino were getting a little bit of a great effort from uh, uh, Iago Falque. So uh, I think I think Torino, again, the, with the nature of the, the Serie A at the moment, it wouldn't surprise me if Torino can find a way to squeak into Europe. And if they do a squeak, a squeak into a Euro, Europa League spot, I think you can certainly make a case for Sirigu being um, their most valuable player this season. You know, we so often look at goal scorers and maybe midfielders, but it's so pivotal for a goalkeeper Um especially when you don't have maybe a ton of talent in front of you defensively to uh, bail you out at times, to have 11 clean sheets for a team, again, that you know probably only has, what, seven, eight wins, give or take? I don't have it in front of me, but a team that's really not, a, it's not a Juventus to have the luxury of options in front to kind of guard you. It's easier to get clean sheets that way. So and without all this being said, I think, again, Sirigu definitely is um, a, a goalkeeper who um, has been very steady for Torino, has been one of the uh, the uh, shining lights for Torino and uh, their hopes for Europa League. And I really could see them backing into a Europa League spot. I just think, again, um, Sierra has done a, a great job and the way the nature, uh, excuse me, has done a great job with kind of the storylines and the drama on the final 
couple match days of the season to the point where I wouldn't be surprised if a team like Torino kind of backs their way in versus maybe like a Lazio or uh, you know maybe a Fiorentina. Mm. I, I do think that goalkeepers are often underappreciated. I just mentioned Burnley when talking about Dwight McNeil earlier on the show. Their goalkeeper Tom Heaton has just come back into the to the fray during this kind of unbeaten run. And I mean, again, I was, I was watching the game that they played against Tottenham. He he made a save against Harry Kane, which was ridiculous. Uh, and these guys are so hard to come by. Good goalkeepers. So when when you get someone like Sirigu, who's uh, kept a lot of clean sheets um, for for Torino this season, who as you mentioned have been kind of up and down and have um, have been interchanging and competing with a lot of teams to get those Europa League spots, sometimes that can give you the edge when you're not playing well. But you can still come away with a nil-nil. You can still come away only conceding one goal in a game uh, when not playing that well. Or you can grind out a one-nil win. That is uh, something that bodes well for, for teams well, long-term uh, in a, it's in a morale season. Booster too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a perfect example too was, um, was last week. I believe it was last week. Uh, uh, Napoli Torino 0-0 Torino obviously another clean sheet for Sirigu right I mean you can maybe point to the fact that Napoli probably wastes some chances but again another clean sheet on his belt it goes a long way a point versus a team that you would otherwise most likely expect to lose um, and I just want to make one quick uh, quick correction actually Sirigu went from PSG to uh, Osasuna not Girona just want to make that clarification there but really since coming back to a Torino and being the starter um, he's been a breath of fresh air. He's given them some stability in net. And, of course, it wouldn't be uh, a Roberto Grosso question without goalkeeping involved. So, uh, again, shout out to him for that. Matt, you were so close to, to leaving the show and being, like, hounded by loads of people on Twitter for getting that wrong. So, uh, so good to clarify. <laughs> um, uh, uh, before we leave you guys, Matt, where can people find out more about you and where can we find out more about the state of play? Yeah, so make sure you guys are following me on Twitter at Matt underscore Santangelo, articles, tweets, uh, with uh, humor and gifts and all that nonsense. Um, you guys can obviously catch me there. And for more on the State of Play pod, again, upcoming episodes, uh, guests that you would like to have come on, uh, players you would like us to profile, uh, make sure you guys are letting us know and following us on Twitter at State of Play pod. Nice, nice. nice. And you can uh, follow me at Pet Berisha, P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. And uh, you can also email us if you've got any uh, ideas or if you want to sponsor us or if you want to collaborate with the podcast, uh, stateofplaypod at gmail.com. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you haven't left a review, please leave a review so far. Unless you really dislike us, then probably you know don't give a review or leave a really bad one and tell us why we want to know why we're doing a bad job uh thank you very much for listening and uh i hope you enjoy doing whatever you're doing while listening to this show